Welcome to Ipsa Dixit, a podcast on legal scholarship. I'm your host, Brian L. Fry, Spears Gilbert Professor of Law at the University of Kentucky College of Law. My guest is Felix B. Chang, Associate Dean of Faculty and Research, Professor of Law, and Co-Director of the Corporate Law Center at University of Cincinnati College of Law. We will discuss his article, How Should Inheritance Law Remediate Inequality? So welcome to the show, Felix. Thanks so much for having me here, Brian. I'm a fan of the podcast, and this is going to be a lot of fun. I'm really excited to have you on, and it's been a delight to have so many participants in my colleague Ramsey Woodcock's Inframarginalism conference come on and talk about their papers. So shout out to Ramsey for making all these great interviews happen. Absolutely. It was a wonderful conference. I was really flattered to be invited and uh, had a great time there. Awesome. Well, this is a really interesting paper, and uh, I understand we'll be able to share the actual paper itself with listeners shortly, so look to the show notes to read the paper itself. But by way of kind of beginning the conversation, I, I wonder if you could talk a little bit about why you think trust in estates law is relevant to income inequality or economic inequality. Sure. I'd, I'd be glad to begin at that point, Brian. I think that Trust in estates is relevant to inequality for a couple of reasons. One is that a lot of instruments of trust in estates operate as an input into the tax system. So you have the estate tax, for instance, and it's broadly thought that the tax system is the best redress for inequality. Doesn't have very many legitimacy issues. Um, you know, it's broad in its applicability. The other reason why I think that trust in the states is applicable as well is I think a trust in the states is a backstop to the laws on how wealth is generated. So these are generally business laws. So business laws, you know, antitrust, financial regulation, corporate law, securities regulation, these laws govern how wealth is generated. And what I'm interested in is at the back end, after all that wealth has been generated and amassed, how is it transmitted? oftentimes across generations, but uh, from perhaps very wealthy settlers to other types of beneficiaries. So I think that broadly speaking, uh, because it affects the tax system and also because it is at the back end how wealth is transmitted, I think that these two areas, uh, you know, if inequality's velocity is not arrested when uh, the law is governing their generation are very weak, then maybe we can tinker with trust in the states to try to claw back at some of that wealth. Historically, has trust in estate law done a good job of grappling with questions of inequality? And maybe if not, are there reasons why not? Yeah, historically, trust in estates has not done a great job. Right now, uh, there are a lot of scholars who are looking at the default rules of trust in estates. Uh, a lot of people are looking at dynasty trusts, asset protection trusts, and also the rules of intestacy themselves and how they perpetuate economic inequality. But in the past, there are several reasons why trust in the states was not thought to be the province where you would remediate inequality. That's for a number of reasons. The first reason is because it's thought that trust in the states comprises of a large body of legal rules. And at least in law and economics, there's this traditional thinking uh, that 
you know, redistribution through legal rules is not very efficient, and we should redistribute through the tax system. That's one reason. Another reason is that the constituencies that trust in the states affects tends to be really narrow. So usually you think of trust in the states kind of as a variation on family law, where if you're transmitting wealth, it might be from one generation to the next, uh, but it's not very many people who are touched. So it's pretty narrow circles. You know, the rules might, if you think about those as wealth transfer mechanisms, govern transfers um, between principals and their agents, you know, between uh, settlers and their beneficiaries, not thought to be a very broad universe of people who are affected. And one of the final reasons why traditionally trust in the states has not done a good job of addressing inequality was it's been long thought that trust in the states animating principle is this notion of testamentary freedom, that once somebody's worked hard during their lifetime, you know, amassed as much wealth as they can, they should be free to dispose of that wealth however they please. And it's not the business of, uh, you know, certainly, you know, uh, trust in the states is not the tax system itself to tell that wealthy settler what to do with their wealth. So for those reasons, traditionally, trust in the states has avoided uh, talk of inequality and remediation of inequality. I will say that there's so much exciting literature that's happening right now where people are doing really innovative stuff. A lot of people are looking at the default rules of intestacy, noting that it's not really suited to the modern family, um, how it prevents the transfer of intergenerational wealth. Other people are looking at, you know, dynasty trusts and asset protection trusts and noting how it sequesters wealth and keeps it from the tax system. So right now, I would say probably in the last five to seven years, there's really been a critical turn in trust and estate scholarship. So you suggest in the paper that trust and estates policy should focus on intergenerational economic mobility. I wonder if you could talk about what that is and why you think it's the best lens for thinking about inequality in a trust and estates context, as opposed to other potential ways of framing the question? Sure. Um, I think of intergenerational economic mobility as this concept that says that the next generation should be able to transcend the economic station that, you know, of their parents, you know, transcend the economic station that they were born into. So for ultra- wealthy families or households, it might mean that, you know, they they slouch a little bit toward the median of, of, of the wealth curve. You know, for lower income households, it might mean that they have the ability to ascend, um, to ascend classes. And the reason why I think that that is a better marker of how we address inequality is that inequality itself is a really squishy concept. Um, you know, in, in economics, there's not really that much consensus on what the best measure of inequality is. There's a Gini coefficient, but there's plenty of criticisms of the Gini coefficient. A lot of people who have done a lot of work on inequality um, within economics have uh, said that one thing that inequality correlates closely with is the stickiness of um, inequality or the stickiness of parental earnings over different generations. So, what they found is that inequality itself correlates with a really low degree of intergenerational economic mobility. Now, the reason why I think that this is a great lens for trust in the states to examine inequality is that trust in the states by its nature talks about the transmission of wealth, oftentimes across generation. And what better body of law is there than the body of law that tells you how much wealth should be freely transmitted across the generations? If you were to capture the ability of 
really high net worth households to transfer some of that wealth, it can immediately give you, I think, an improvement in um, the degree of intergenerational economic mobility. Um, by the same token, if you were able to amplify the amounts that lower income households would be able to transmit over time, you know, principally probably by tinkering with intestacy and property taxes, then it would allow lower income households a way to leapfrog over the economic station of their parents. Well, so as a policy matter, do you think it's more important to focus on reforming particular policies or particular programs within the trust and estate sphere, or to think more broadly about trust and estates policy as a kind of programmatic way of thinking about intergenerational economic mobility? Yeah, I, in the paper, I started thinking broadly by creating this taxonomy of the instruments that were probably most uh, distributively efficient in trust in the states if you were to tinker with. So the instruments that would give you the greatest payoff in countering wealth inequality and also fostering intergenerational economic mobility. So these would be instruments that affect very ultra-wealthy households, so at the very high end of the wealth spectrum and also at the very low end of the wealth spectrum. But I think that we can go beyond and to think more deeply about the specific types of instruments and uh, the specific types of reform we might undertake. So I can give you an example. Uh, if we were to fall, uh, if we were to bolster, for instance, the rule against perpetuities, which dictates how much wealth would be captured uh, in the estate tax, um, if we were to bolster the rule against perpetuities, we would therefore probably limit uh, the amount of wealth that goes into dynasty trusts. If you do that, one question is what happens when wealthy settlers suddenly have all this wealth that they can't put into dynasty trusts? They might direct them to um, inter vivo spending or maybe even investment. And so the reason why I think that this is important, especially to look at through the lens of intergenerational economic mobility, is that sometimes you may get results that seem like they amplify wealth inequality in the short term. If, for instance, very wealthy settlers decide to invest rather than to transmit their wealth into dynasty trusts, uh, you know, investment can sometimes generate uh, payoffs intragenerationally, that is within one generation, that you know, has them pulling away from everybody else. But I think that if over time, what we try to encourage is this regression of both ends of the wealth spectrum toward the mean, over time and over generations, I think that that's probably the best guiding principle we can have within trust and estates. Well, so to the extent we've seen policy changes in various areas of trust and estates law in the last, say, 30 or 40 years, do you see them as being consistent with the kind of programmatic focus on intergenerational economic mobility you're advocating or inconsistent, neutral, like sort of how are we doing in terms of pursuing that as a goal? Yeah, it's interesting because how we're doing has really evolved through the decades and it hasn't really evolved in lockstep with the way the academic literature in our understanding of inequality has evolved. So I think in large part, the law and policy itself has evolved away from a concern about inequality. And the reason is because um, I'm principally concerned about, you know, the estate tax. So uh, the estate and these wealth transfer taxes, what you've seen over the decades is this huge increase in the exemption 
uh, for estate taxes and also this shrinking of the estate tax, that rate. So what policy has done through the decades uh, is to minimize the states that are subject to these taxes. But at the same time, our understanding of inequality has become so much more sophisticated. So uh, especially, I think, since the, you know, the presidential election of 2016, you have a lot of scholars who are really concerned about inequality. It's got really deleterious effects. It foments, among other things, political instability, um, you know, racial instability. So you have a lot of people who are really looking at inequality from different lenses. And our understanding of inequality has really taken off and really evolved. But for the most part, the law and policy in this area has not been in step with the academic evolution. That's not necessarily that surprising. Where I do see glimmers of hope, though, are where people are working on intestacy. So a lot of people have mentioned that, you know, intestacy doesn't really serve lower income households really well. And in our age in which you've got blended families and people who are tending to cohabitate rather than to marry, uh, which itself falls along, um, you know, that itself splinters along economic lines. I think that thinking around intestacy has improved over the last few years. Mm. So do you think like disaggregating some of these different elements might make it more politically feasible? Like, for example, what can we do around intestacy and, you know, trying to sort of offer benefits for um, people with smaller amounts of economic wealth that might not kind of generate the kind of political opposition that efforts to change other aspects of trust and estates law might produce? Yeah. Around intestacy in particular, a lot of the reform proposals by trust and estates scholars have been kind of to opt out of the intestacy system. So for instance, Reed Weisbord, whose writings I really admire, has said that you can opt out of inequality by uh, having this uh, default where everybody writes wills. Um, some other people have said, well, maybe you can opt out of inequality by looking to uh, decedents when they pass away by looking at their non-probate instruments, sort of in these non-probate instruments, who they assign as the beneficiaries and saying that, well, if you've got estates that pass through the probate system, maybe you can look to non-probate instruments designation. So I see a lot of those reforms as opting out of inequality. I'm sorry, is is opting out of intestacy. At the same time, you do have some reforms where people are um, trying to get the drafters, for instance, of the Uniform Probate Code to think more broadly about the modern family and what the modern family might look like. Uh, there's a, a growing body of research that says that marriage and cohabitation are really split among economic lines so that uh, it's a paradox that marriage rates and divorce rates, um, you know, have have both increased. And the reason is because marriage rates, it's increasing among, tends to happen among middle income and, and upper middle income and higher income households, whereas lower income households tend to just cohabitate. So the thinking along what the default rules of intestacy might look like that people are beginning to take account of those realities. And I guess in answer to that question, I'll end on the political realities. Since you began with the political realities, I think we're at this really interesting inflection point because so many people are concerned about inequality. And it's not 
just uh, the populist left. It's also the populist right. And so with a lot of people who are concerned about inequality, who naturally think that the system is rigged, especially the system of business laws and how wealth is generated. I think if we can spin trust in the states is a way to claw back some of those, think of those as ill-gotten gains, think of those as rents, classify those however you like. But I think if we frame trust in the states as a counterpart to the laws around how wealth is generated, we might be able to get some political alignment um, to make productive use of that and to advocate for some reforms at the back end of how wealth is transmitted after it's been uh, accrued. So in the paper, you talk about a lot of different ways in which uh, trust in the state's policy has changed uh, over the last several decades, some at the federal level, but also at the state level as well. I mean, it seemed to me there's sort of like this this kind of simultaneous story of kind of big picture federal change, but also jurisdictional competition. Um, how, how do you see those two fitting together? And do they feed off of each other in some way? Uh, they do. A, a lot of the laws of trust in the states are state level laws. Um, one area in which trust in the states is particularly powerful as a counterweight to inequality is, of course, uh, with the estate tax. But the estate tax, the federal laws uh, with the 1986 amendments to the GST tax looked to state laws on the rule against perpetuities for how long estates could escape uh, estate taxation. And so you have this interesting uh, estate tax federalism. You also do at the state level then have jurisdictional competition for assets um, of very wealthy settlers. And a lot of that jurisdictional competition is going to be driven by, you know, financial advisors and the estate planners and um, attorneys in each state. But you do have this race to the bottom where you began to see states tinkering with and curtailing the rule against perpetuities. Uh, the rule against perpetuities is, you know, this notoriously difficult to teach. It's this a malpractice trap, but there's been reforms to steadily eviscerate and flat out abolish it over the decades. So that's one example. Um, another example are the laws governing asset protection trusts. So these are trusts where a settler can self-settle and to place them out of the reach of creditors at the same time, making the settler both a trustee and the initial beneficiary. And so states have really begun to compete with a lot of that business, which much of it was offshore, driven by uh, jurisdictions that are commonly associated with money laundering. But um, so you began to see some race to the bottom competition where states would loosen their restrictions around asset protection trust. So those two examples are, are some examples of this uh, trust in the state's federalism. Tell me more about this abolition of the rule against perpetuities. Because I found that quite shocking, right? That that is happening at all. And it's very hard for me to understand what the legitimate policy rationale would be for enabling the creation of a perpetual non-charitable trust. Like what? Yeah. Yeah, that's, that's absolutely right. The policy rationale is, is unconvincing. Um, but really what drives it is the, the GST tax, so the estate tax. Um, folks who've done the heavy lifting in this area it include people like Rob Sitkoff, um, Max Schanzenbach, uh, you know, Joel Dobris, uh, a lot of people in Stuart Sturk. So 
they've seen this migration. And one empirical study by Sitkoff and Schanzenbach had said there's something like $100 billion that have in assets that have moved around as a result of this slow and steady decline of the rule against perpetuities. And the story there is that because the, the how long in a state can escape estate taxation tracks the state rule against perpetuities, uh, wealthy households and settlers will simply choose a jurisdiction that has eviscerated the rule against perpetuities as the situs of the trust. So um, early on, it was instead of this really difficult rule against perpetuities, maybe we have like a bright line rule of 90 years for the vesting period, um, you know, these contingent interests. Then there was like the wait and see. Other states have said, well, 90 years, why don't we set it at 100 years? Other states have said 1,000 years. Then some estates have just eliminated the rule against perpetuities outright. I mean, the 1,000 years one really gets me. I'm like, eliminating it, okay, kind of feels even less hypocritical and weird than 1,000 years. Right, exactly. <laughs> like, exactly. So, like, why should why should we let states do this? And is there anything the federal government can do about it? Yeah, um, there, there are a number of proposals. I think in in one lecture that I think it was Joel Dobris who had delivered, he'd cataloged the number of ways in which we can shore up the rule against perpetuities. One is just we could have federal legislation here. We could just say this stuff should not be determined um, as a matter of state law. Um, another is to just tax these things mercilessly. So whenever you you get a whiff of the dynasty trust, just tax it and just tax it mercilessly. I mean, that is not that far-fetched. It wasn't that long ago where the estate tax rate was something like 60 to 70%, not that many decades ago. Um, you know, it, what where I think it gets really interesting is that a number of jurisdictions that are most notorious for this stuff are offshore jurisdictions. Um, you know, so... Uh, some of the stuff that we read comes out of like, you know, the, the Cayman Islands, for instance. And uh, I think that would probably be more of a, a U.S. foreign policy issue. But I think there there are a number of ways in which you can you, you can kind of countermand this evisceration of the rule against perpetuities. There was a, another article that had come out not too long ago by Eric Cadiz where he said, you know, maybe the, the tax rate should fluctuate a little bit. He was looking macroeconomically. What he was really worried about was the fact that you've got all these assets sequestered, keeps them from the nation stream of commerce. And so you get this paradox of thrift, how that might have all sorts of macroeconomic uh, consequences. So he says that, you know, if um, the macroeconomic indicators are above a certain percent, then maybe we could have a fluctuating tax on these states uh, to try to disincentivize settlers from holding too much in these perpetual trusts. So I think there are a number of really creative ways of tinkering with this stuff. Well, so, I mean, all of these proposals make perfect sense to me, and I'd love to see that happen. But I observe that the estate tax has been going the opposite direction for a while now. Like, why is that? And does that tell us anything about the salience of intergenerational economic mobility as a sort of governing or guiding policy uh, goal uh, for for legislators? Yeah, the, the slow erosion of the estate taxes is a really interesting story. And 
it's for a confluence of a number of factors because before that happened, the estate tax was relatively high. Um, it's really good organization on the part of the repealers who had been very patient and who had been working at this stuff at first on the margins when it was thought of as a loony idea until they really got a lot more buy-in. Um, part of that is because they were able to get buy-in surprisingly among a, a, a number of households of color and also you know small farms where it was spun as a way of government preventing the accumulation of intergenerational wealth if estate taxes were too high. So it's really good organization on the part of repealers. It was the near lack of organization at all among progressive lawmakers. And when this really started happening in the 1990s among um, democratic lawmakers, at the same time, I think a lot of that is going to be rooted in the spirit of our nation's optimism. So Americans really think that, you know, they can make it, you know, so that they can accumulate uh, wealth, just like uh, our most notable or notorious entrepreneurs. Um, I think that's a good thing, you know, but I think that part of the demise of the estate tax can be traced right back to the spirit of American optimism. Again, we're at this really interesting inflection point, though, where there's so much cynicism about uh, the loss of business and how uh, the system being rigged and how it is very difficult for normal, hardworking Americans to amass intergenerational wealth. And so I think that it's an opportune time to retell that story and to try to capture some of this momentum to harness it for for reform. Well, so in the paper, you distinguish between intergenerational economic mobility and intergenerational income mobility. I, I wonder if you could talk about what the distinction is and why you think it matters and why it's something we should be attentive to. Yeah, thanks so much for catching that, Brian, for asking that. I think this distinction between intergenerational wealth transmission and intergenerational incomes or the stickiness of intergenerational incomes is a technical one, but it's an important one because it helps us sort through what our guiding normative principles should be. So uh, usually when economists think about inequality and those who think about intergenerational economic mobility, measure it as the elasticity of earnings of fathers and sons. And it's for a number of technical reasons. One is because if you introduce um, the earnings of daughters, then because of the gendered wage gap, it, it gets a little bit imprecise. But um, economists usually measure the marker of intergenerational economic mobility by looking at how different uh, the son's earnings are from the father's. And so what I think we should be looking at because I'm looking at it from the perspective of trust in the states, is how different is the accumulation of uh, wealth of the next generation in comparison with the prior generation? That runs into a number of difficulties, not least of which is empirical, because wealth is really difficult to measure. Incomes are a little bit easier to measure. Wealth is much harder to measure. But the reason why I think that this distinction is one that makes a difference is because uh, if you're thinking about Incomes. Usually I think of incomes as a person's lifetime earnings. And if that's true, there are many indications that there, there are some nuances about it. But if that's generally true, then very few people would dispute the fact that, you know, if you earn a lot of money, oftentimes they might be attributable to uh, your skill or your degree of effort, even though, you know, we know that there are a number of things that determine one's income. Um, in luck and the family you were born into, the opportunities, et cetera, et cetera. But I think a lot of people would say 
we want a degree of inequality because inequality is where we see the split in society's differences um, in, in their attitudes toward work or maybe in talent. And that's something that maybe we're comfortable rewarding. However, when it comes to how much of that income do you get to transmit to the next generation, I think very few people would say, well, you know, from the perspective of being born with like a leg up where you don't have to do anything at all for the rest of your life and you can just kind of live off the income of trust, very few people would say that that's equitable or far fewer people would say that that's equitable. So that's why I think it's important to parse the difference between the intergenerational transmission and stickiness of wealth versus of income. Um, It's not something that we can easily measure, not as of yet, but it helps us think about how much inequality we should be willing to tolerate. Well, so Felix, in closing, there was another kind of deep normative tension that you recognized in the paper, which seems like sort of the elephant in the room for a lot of the ideas you're talking about. And that's this kind of tension between kind of a sense of kind of anti-dynastic feelings, but also pro-inheritance feelings among the electorate who ultimately are influencing the politicians who are making decisions about what our policy is going to look like in this area. Sort of, could you talk a little bit about the tension between those two perspectives and what, if anything, we can do to reconcile them? Yeah. So on that subject, which is the tension between uh, the more democratic or equal notion of inheritance versus uh, the notion which goes back to testamentary freedom of you having worked hard during your life should be able to transmit what you want. Um, the, the tension is this one, which is uh, on one hand, there's this American ideal of liberty, which is you should be able to do what you want. You know, if you're not breaking any laws for the most part, uh, you should be able to do what you want. And that means that by extension, if you've worked hard to create this body of wealth, you should be able to transmit it however you like. You should be able to destroy it if you want. You should be able to give it away to charity. You should be able to give it to your uh, lineal descendants in perpetuity if you like. Now, the other notion is also one that's at the heart of the nation, which is this notion of equality, which is, well, it's going to be very difficult for all of us to achieve our potential if some of us are born uh, into families where we pretty much have it made, where we're able to following our parents' footsteps because they've devised this very lucrative business versus others of us who have to struggle along the way who were born without um, any inheritance from any estate. So uh, it, it, it's these opposing forces of liberty and equality. And I think that maybe the way we can reconcile that is to say you have the liberty to achieve your full potential but that's a liberty that is severely constrained um, if the rules of trust in the states make it very easy for ultra-wealthy households to devise their wealth, giving their generations, future generations in perpetuity, a leg up. So I actually think that it's fine to have these opposing notions that animate our society, um, but I think that capturing... Um, in appealing to people's notions of liberty, I, I think that there are ways to do it in a way that can also appeal to uh, their notions of equality. 
Well, Felix, thanks so much for coming on the show to talk about this excellent and provocative paper. And uh, I hope we see some impact with, with policymakers. Thanks again, Brian, for inviting me. I'll be 